The music uh, you, uh, those of you here in the hall heard uh, as um, we were just uh, about to start, uh, was one of Robert Schumann's Kinderszenen, Scenes from Childhood, composed in 1838, and it was the seventh variation, Dreaming. And what I want to propose in the lecture today is that, in essence, the Romantics invented our modern idea of childhood. I would suggest that although before the time of the Romantics, of whom Schumann is one of the great examples, music was, of course, written for children, simple songs, music uh, of, a, of, a, of a kind of childlike quality, the notion of a piece of serious art music about childhood, suggesting various aspects of childhood, for example, the idea that children spend a lot of time daydreaming, that is something that simply would not have happened before Romanticism, because it was the Romantics who invented our idea of childhood. William Wordsworth. In lyrical ballads, which those of you who were here last month for my previous lecture, uh, that revolutionary poetic collection of 1798 co-written with Samuel Taylor Coleridge, included a poem in which he imagined encountering a child in a churchyard. The poem's called We Are Seven. A simple child, dear brother Jim, that lightly draws its breath and feels its life in every limb. What should it know of death? I met a little cottage girl. She was eight years old, she said. Her hair was thick with many a curl that clustered round her head. She had a rustic woodland air and she was wildly clad. Her eyes were fair and very fair. Her beauty made me glad. Sisters and brothers, little maid, how many may you be? How many? Seven in all, she said, and wondering, looked at me. And where are they, I pray you tell? She answered, seven are we, and two of us at Conway dwell, and two are gone to sea. Gone to sea, presumably, because this is a time of war, so they've gone off as midshipmen into the navy. Two of us in the churchyard lie, my sister and my brother, and in the churchyard cottage, I dwell near them with my mother. Notice that she's a single mother, again, perhaps the father has had to go off to the war. Or maybe never, the father was never present, we don't know. You say that two at Conway dwell and two are gone to sea, yet you are seven. I pray you tell, sweet maid, how may this be? Then did the little maid reply, seven boys and girls are we, two of us in the churchyard lie beneath the churchyard tree. You run about, my little maid, your limbs, they are alive. If two are in the churchyard laid, then ye are only five. Their graves are green, they may be seen, the little maid replied. Twelve steps or more from my mother's door, and they are side by side. My stockings there I often knit, my kerchief there I hem, and there upon the ground I sit, I sit and sing to them. And often after sunset, sir, when it is light and fair, I take my little porringer and eat my supper there. The first was that died was little Jane, in bed she moaning lay, till God released her of her pain, and then she went away. So in the churchyard she was laid, and all the summer dry, together round her grave we played, my brother John and I. And when the ground was white with snow, and I could run and slide, my brother John was forced to go, and he lies by her side. Ironically, a few years after this poem, Wordsworth's own dear brother John died at sea in the wreck of the ship Abergavenny. How many are you then, said I, if they two are in heaven? The little maiden did reply, O oh, master, we are seven. But they are dead, these two are dead, their spirits are in heaven. T'was throwing words away, for still the little maid would have her will and said, Nay, we are seven. The child does not know death. For the child, there is no difference between the five who are alive, the two who are dead. She sits and sings to them 
the spirit of the dead brother and sister are with her. She is in the churchyard, they are below the ground, but as in Wordsworth's great poem about another dead girl, Lucy, there is a sense that the body that is in the earth is as alive as a living body. And this little maid has a certain willfulness. The maid would have her will. She's determined to say that we are seven. Wordsworth has been mocked for this poem. There's a famous caricature by Max Beerbohm called William Wordsworth at cross purposes in the Lake District. It's pouring with rain as it tends to in the Lake District. And there is Wordsworth uh, and the little girl. Uh, and he's kind of missing the point. But I think he doesn't miss the point. He precisely gets the point. And in the very simplicity of the poem, there is a reaching out, a sympathy with the, the viewpoint, the consciousness of the child. A similar kind of um, debate uh, occurs in a pair of poems also included um, in Lyrical Ballads. They're called Expostulation and Reply and The Tables Turned. And they take the form again of a dialogue um, in this case, a dialogue between Wordsworth and a figure who's partly based um, on his own school teacher, uh, a man called uh, William Taylor, but also based on, uh, Wordsworth said, someone else that he met who was a little bit um, too obsessed with philosophy and intellectualising and reading books. And they have a debate about the relative merits of book learning and simply learning from nature, learning from, look, from looking around you. This is from towards the end of the first of the poems, where Wordsworth replies to his friend, whom he calls Matthew, the eye it cannot choose but see, we cannot bid the ear be still, our bodies feel where'er they be, against or with our will. Nor less I deem that there are powers which of themselves our minds impress, that we can feed this mind of ours in a wise passiveness. Think you mid all this mighty sum of things for ever speaking, that nothing of itself will come, but we must still be seeking. Then ask not, wherefore, here alone, conversing as I may, I sit upon this old grey stone and dream my time away. Again, like Schumann in his childhood dreaming piano piece, like the little girl in the church. Wordsworth is just sitting on an old stone, dreaming in a kind of wise passiveness. His senses are receiving the beauties of the world around him. And for him, that is as important an educational process as the act of book learning. He comes upon Matthew, his friend, again, and actually finds Matthew, um, also just uh, uh, out in the outdoors, but with his head deep in a book. And this is The Tables Turned, the kind of sequel poem, in which he says this. Books, tis a dull and endless strife. Come, hear the woodland linnet, how sweet his music. On my life, there's more of wisdom in it. And hark, how blithe the throstle, that's the, the song thrush, how the throstle sings, and he is no mean preacher. Come forth into the light of things, let nature be your teacher. She has a world of ready wealth, our minds and hearts to bless. Spontaneous wisdom breathed by health, truth breathed by cheerfulness. One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good, than all the sages can. Sweet is the law which nature brings. Our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous forms of things. 
we murder to dissect. Enough of science and of art. Close up those barren leaves. Come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. So again, this idea of listening, listening to nature, the consciousness receiving the sweet impulses of nature, putting the intellect to bed, spontaneous wisdom achieved through the breeze coming from the wood, through respecting and listening to what Wordsworth rather beautifully calls the light of things. Let nature be your teacher could perhaps be the watchword for the romantic idea of childhood education. Wordsworth was not alone in thinking about the importance of spontaneity to the child. A few years before he published uh, Lyrical Ballads with Coleridge, um, the eccentric, brilliant, marginalised London figure of William Blake published his Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. And again and again, what Blake does is look at two different aspects of childhood. A childhood of innocence, a childhood that falls into experience. Here's a pair of poems, uh, one from innocence, one from experience. Infant joy. I have no name. I am but two days old. What shall I call thee? I happy am. Joy is my name. Sweet joy befall thee. Pretty joy, sweet joy, but two days old. Sweet joy I call thee. Thou dost smile, I sing the while. Sweet joy befall thee. And of course, Blake engraved all his own poems, illustrated them himself. And there in the image, we see a naked child. The, the idea of the figure of the naked child was so important to William Blake. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who I'll be talking about in a moment, said that an infant, a, a young child, a baby, knows only two emotions, joy and pain. For Blake, joy should be the emotion of childhood. But he's acutely conscious that once the child enters the world and is forced to submit to the conventions of the world, then we get the opposite of joy, infant sorrow. My mother groaned, my father wept. Into the dangerous world I leapt, helpless, naked, piping loud like a fiend hid in a cloud, struggling in my father's hands, striving against my swaddling bands. Bound and weary, I thought best to sulk upon my mother's breast. A key line in that poem is striving against my swaddling bands. In 1762, in France, Geneva, um, and Amsterdam, there was published a book by Jean-Jacques Rousseau called A Meal or On Education. It was really the first treatise on, um, uh, well, the, the first treatise to suggest uh, a kind of child-centred education. Um, the first treatise of what we might call romantic childhood. And right at the beginning of that, Blake, uh, sorry, sorry, Rousseau says, um, there's two things wrong with the way we rear our children. Number one, women don't breastfeed. Typically, well-to-do women would not breastfeed their, their babies themselves. They would send them out to a wet nurse. And number two, the moment a child was born, it was swaddled, wrapped in swaddling bands, wrapped round, restricted. And Rousseau said, what we need 
is breastfeeding and no swaddling. And I think it, once you see that idea, you immediately get an idea of a desire for a freedom, for a kind of liberty for the child, and also a great importance placed upon the bond between mother and child. Rousseau says that if a mother doesn't breastfeed her child, then that bond which comes from the physical contact with the breast and the eye contact between the child and the mother, without that, then the sentimental education will always be deprived. And so it is infant, in infant sorrow, it's the swaddling bands that are restricting the child, causing the sorrow. And so it is that the sorrowful child, instead of feeding delightedly on the mother's breast, is sulking on the mother's breast. And then, of course, as children grow older, they are regimented into the ways of society. In Songs of Innocence and Experience, um, Blake wrote two poems called Holy Thursday, an innocent one and an experienced one. But here, even in the innocence mode, the children are beginning to be regimented. You see in the engraving, they are being taken into church. It was on a holy Thursday, their innocent faces clean. The children walking two and two in red and blue and green. Grey-headed beadles walked before with wands as white as snow, till into the high dome of Paul's they like Thames waters flow. So they're being led on Maundy Thursday, Holy Thursday, led to church. But there's that regimented quality. The beadle is there beforehand, keeping them in line. They seem, oh, what a multitude they seemed, these flowers of London town. Seated in companies, they sit with radiance all their own. There is a kind of innocence, a radiance there. But the hum of multitudes was there, but multitudes of lambs, thousands of little boys and girls raising their innocent hands. Multitudes of lambs, you immediately think of lambs going to the slaughter. Now, like a mighty wind, they raise to heaven the voice of song, or like harmonious thunderings, the seats of heaven among. Beneath them sit the aged men, wise guardians of the poor. Then cherish pity, lest you drive an angel from your door. If you feel the emotion of pity or compassion, then perhaps the child will grow up in a good society. But that doesn't always happen. It especially doesn't happen in the world of London in the 1780s and the 1790s, a world of poverty, of oppression, of strict social hierarchies. Thus, in Songs of Experience, Holy Thursday again, is this a holy thing to see in a rich and fruitful land, babes reduced to misery, fed with cold and usurious hand? Is that trembling cry a song? Can it be a song of joy and so many children poor? It is a land of poverty, and their sun does never shine, and their fields are bleak and bare, and their ways are filled with thorns. It is eternal winter there. For where'er the sun does shine, where'er the rain does fall, Babe can never hunger there, nor poverty, the mind appalled. Blake appalled by poverty. Blake's songs of experience are extraordinarily radical poems in that they are advocating an idea of childhood and education and growth that was diametrically opposed to the manner in which Poems were traditionally used to bring up children. Throughout the 18th century, one of the most popular books was 
Isaac Watts, the Reverend Isaac Watts's cheap repository tract, Divine Songs Attempted in Easy Language for the Use of Children, sometimes known as Divine and Moral Songs, a collection of moralistic poems printed again and again through, throughout the 18th century. And among the most famous of those are the poems Against Idleness and Mischief and The Sluggard, How Doth the Little Busy Be, didactic, a teaching poem, telling you not to be lazy, telling you you have to be good. This is what children's poetry, songs for children, were for through the 18th century. What Blake is doing is taking the form of Watts's didactic poems and turning them against Watts, against, indeed, the precepts, the restrictive precepts of the church. Similarly, um, one of the most influential um, books uh, for children in the 18th century was called The History of Sandford and Merton, a work intended for the use of children, which tells the story of how a spoilt little boy called Tommy Merton is transformed into a proper gentleman uh, through the example of uh, a yeoman farmer's son called Harry Sanford. The yeoman farmer's son is a good, sturdy Englishman who gets down and works and is never idle, and he teaches the spoilt upper-class boys the value of hard work, good behaviour, conformity to the social order. So the key text behind all this, as I've said, is Rousseau. We've met Rousseau in previous lectures. We, we saw him on the origins of inequality in our first lecture. Uh, we saw him writing the social contract and helping to shape the French Revolution in the second. We saw the Nouvelle Eloise, his, his, his great novel of sentiment and, uh, and passion. But Emile, or On Education, is probably his most influential work. It was a work uh, that was banned in Europe, mainly because of one particular section in it, where Emile, the child who's being educated, um, is given a religious le lesson by a vicar, uh, a vicar from the, 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 the Savoie, uh, from the Alpine district, uh, who gives him his profession of faith. And, and this vicar actually says, the only real evidence for God is the beauties of nature. Uh, the, there is no evidence for uh, a transcendent God. Um, natural religion, as it was called, is really the only kind of possible religion. And for that reason, uh, Rousseau's work um, was banned. But it was an enormously uh, influential work. It was translated into English during the French Revolutionary period by Helen Maria Williams. Those of you who were at my lecture on the, uh, the, the French Revolutionary period will remember she was the woman, the English poet in Paris, whom Wordsworth sought to meet. And while she was in Paris, she started... Uh, so I do, I do beg your pardon, sorry, it's a different book she... She translated, I'm coming to that one in a moment, I'm rushing ahead of myself. Uh, it, but Emile was translated into English. Um, and it, it exercised an enormous influence across, across Europe. It begins with Rousseau saying, everything is good as it leaves the hands of the author of things. Everything degenerates in the hands of man. 
So Rousseau's idea is that when we're born, we are what, what he calls a natural man. We have a kind of freedom. We look after ourselves. This is a very similar idea to his notion of the noble savage that we also talked about in an early, earlier lecture. But then as the child is educated and brought into society, that natural man falls away. So how do you avoid this process, Rousseau asks in Emile. And he suggests, essentially, he, he invents the idea of what we would now call child-centred learning. He says, we should just let the child be spontaneous. Let the child learn from nature. So typically, uh, he says it's best for a child to be educated in the countryside. Um, and we shouldn't be thrusting books and doctrine and learning down the throat of the child, we should allow the child to have exactly what Wordsworth calls that kind of wise passiveness, just receiving the influences of nature. If you think of um, the kind of what we sometimes think of as the kind of 1960s uh, revolution in education, the move towards child-centered learning, in a way that was a revival of Rousseauistic ideas. Um, now, the danger of that, this, Rousseau says, um, is that it could lead to a kind of selfishness. Um, so he, he says, how do we make children into good citizens um, without uh, restricting them, uh, oppressing them through um, didactic learning of the sort that we saw in Isaac Watts's poems? And the answer, he says, is that we teach them to have sympathy for the poor that we should show children, particularly as they grow towards their teenage years, they should be exposed to those who are less fortunate from themselves, less fortunate than themselves, and that would then cause them to develop feelings of sympathy or what we would now call empathy. And Rousseau very interestingly says it's particularly important that this should happen around the time of puberty, because around the time of puberty, is when sexual desires begin to be awakened. And the danger of sexual desires is if they are not mingled with love, with altruism, with uh, a desire for friendship, then they can become highly destructive. Um, they, they can lead to sexual indulgence, to prostitution, and so on and so forth. So the poor, the suffering, become of immense importance to the educational process for Rousseau. And I think this is one of the lessons that Wordsworth learns from Rousseau. Interestingly, Wordsworth is very reticent about his own reading of Rousseau. And that's partly because Rousseau was regarded as such a controversial figure, was closely associated with atheism and with the French Revolution. And as Wordsworth began to back away from the revolution, he didn't really want to be tarnished with the Rousseau brush. But there is no doubt that the sense we get, and again, we talked about this in last month's lecture about the lyrical ballads, where so many of Wordsworth's poems are about encounters with the poor, the sense that you would meet uh, a, a deserted mother, uh, a discharged soldier, a beggar on the road, uh, a, a shepherd with the last of his sheep. From these impoverished people, you learn, you learn the art of sympathy, the art of empathy. Another aspect of the idealization of the child goes back to this idea of what Rousseau calls the natural man, 
the child close to nature. Now, this is the book that Helen Marai Williams translated uh, into English. It was called Paul et Virginie, and she translated it as Paul and Virginia, written in the 1780s, just before the French Revolution. Hugely influential book by uh, a writer called uh, Bernardin de Saint-Pierre. And it tells the story of a boy and a girl who have been friends since birth and they fall in love. And the story is set on the island of Mauritius, which is a kind of paradise, a paradise in the Indian Ocean. It was un Mauritius was, of course, under French rule at the time. And um, Bernard de Saint-Pierre actually worked there for a time. He was an advocate for the abolition of slavery. But he, in describing life on Mauritius, he makes it into a kind of utopian society. The inhabitants share their possessions. They have equal amounts of land. They live in harmony. There is no violence. Um, the story becomes a, a, a tragic one. Um, uh, Paul is on Mauritius. Uh, Virginie comes to it and there's a shipwreck um, and he tries to save her and fails. And so it is, it is a tragedy. But the influence of the novel was in simultaneously idealising the, the childhood intimacy of Paul and Virginie, their innocence and their intimacy, and linking that to the idea of um, a kind of paradisal state of nature on this island of Mauritius. Again, that link between the Rousseau idea of the noble savage and the idea of childhood was further established uh, with a story that swept uh, across Europe around about 1800, was when, which was when a feral child uh, was discovered um, in the woods uh, in the Avaron region of France. Uh, they called him Victor. Uh, he, he appeared to have spent his whole life um, in the woods. Uh, he couldn't, uh, he, didn't, he didn't have any language. Um, and he, he, he was sort of adopted by a, a, a man uh, called Jean-Marc Gaspard Itard, who duly wrote a book uh, about it, an historical account of the discovery and education of a savage man. Um, it's very mysterious as to exactly where Victor came from, how long he had been in the woods and so on. But for the thinkers of the time, here was a true story of childhood and the noble savage taken together. And it was an opportunity to educate him um, and to, to discover um, what man, a child, would be like in the state of nature. Uh, many, many uh, journalistic accounts were written of him and uh, he duly became uh, a figure celebrated in poetry. Mary Robinson, uh, known as Perdita Robinson, one of the underrated but very important poets of the period, wrote um, a poem about him calling it The Savage of Avaron. "'Twas in the mazes of a wood, the lonely wood of Avaron. I heard a melancholy tone, it seemed to freeze my blood. A torrent near was flowing fast, and hollow was the midnight blast, as o'er the leafless woods it passed, while terror fraught I stood. O mazy woods of Avaron, O wilds of dreary solitude, amid thy thorny alleys rude, I thought myself alone. I thought no living thing could be so weary of the world as me, while on my winding path the pale moon shone. It's very like one of Coleridge's ballads. Mary Robinson was actually the uh, poetry editor of the Morning Post, and uh, she really in some ways discovered Coleridge um, as, a, as a poet. 
And so she hears this voice, and obviously it's going to be Victor, the child. Sometimes the tone was, sour, was loud and sad, and sometimes dulcet, faint and slow, and then a tone of frantic woe. It almost made me mad. The burden was alone, alone. And then the heart did feebly groan, then suddenly a cheerful tone proclaimed a spirit glad. Oh, mazy woods of Aviron, oh, wilds of dreary solitude, and amid your thorny alleys rude, I wished myself a traveller alone. You remember Rousseau saying, the child in the state of nature has only two emotions, joy and sorrow. She hears the tone, not, not speech, but just inarticulate sounds of the child. First, it seems to be sad and woeful, but then suddenly it's a cheerful tone. And at that point, she kind of flips the poem and says, it's actually quite nice being in the state of nature. I would like to be the one who is alone. Alone, I heard the wild boy say, and swift he climbed a blasted oak, and there, while morning's herald woke, he watched the opening day. Yet dark and sunken was his eye, like a lawn maniac's, wild and shy, and scowling like a winter sky without one beaming ray. Then mazy woods of Aviron, and wilds of dreary solitude, amid thy thorny alleys rude, I sighed to be a traveller alone. Alone, alone, I heard him shriek. Her version of the child can actually speak English, which, of course, they couldn't. Poetic license there. It was like the shriek of a dying man. And then to mutter he began, but oh, he could not speak. Ah, she's projecting the idea of alone into the child. I saw him point to heaven and sigh. The big drop trembled in his eye. And slowly from a yellow sky, I saw the pale morn break. I saw the woods of Aviron, their wilds of dreary solitude. I marked their thorny alleys rude and wished to be a traveller alone. So often the romantic wishes to be alone. At the same time, of course, the late 18th, early 19th century was a period um, of huge population increase um, and of urbanisation. People not being alone, people coming together in the city. And one of the places that they like to come together and to, to be exposed to kind of new ideas and ideals at the time was the theatre. And so it was uh, that in 1803, um, a 12-year-old actor took to the London stage. He was known as Master Betty. He was regarded as a child genius. He took on the role of a character called Young Norval in a kind of historical tragedy by uh, a Scotsman called John Home. The tragedy was called Douglas. So nobody's heard of it now, but it was hugely, hugely popular um, in the late 18th, early 19th century. And then he went on at the age of 12 to play the part of Hamlet. The performance sold out, queues all around the block, riots, people trying to get in. The child genius. There's two portraits of him there uh, by, uh, uh, by James Opie of him as the young Norval and, uh, uh, and, and by James Northcott um, of, of, of his Hamlet. Sadly, uh, the fashion for Master Betty didn't last. Um, he uh, rather quickly uh, declined uh, when he, he tried coming back to the stage at the age of 21, um, and it was a complete, a complete disaster, you know, often the fate of the child actor. And rather sad, he lived for a long time and actually devoted his life to theatrical charities, which was uh, rather kind of him. But the sort of, uh, the, the idea of uh, the child, the child genius, uh, enormously popular at the time. Well, I've given you a kind of very brisk tour there of a range of influences on and examples of the romantic child. 
But it seems to me that it is in the poetry of William Wordsworth that we get the greatest, most thoughtful, most sustained examples. Two perhaps contrasting examples. Uh, the first from another of the lyrical ballads, uh, the poem called The Idiot Boy. This is a poem about a Down's syndrome boy, a Down's syndrome child. I think the first time anybody in history had written a poem um, about a child with Down syndrome. Um, and uh, he rides out at night and his family are, of course, terribly worried that he's lost. Um, and when eventually they find him and he comes back, um, this is his encounter with his mother. For while they all were travelling home, cried Betty, that's his mother, Betty Foy, she's called, tell us, Johnny, do, where all the long night you have been, what you have heard, what you have seen, and Johnny, mind you tell us true. Now Johnny, all night long, had heard the owls in tuneful concert strive. No doubt, too, he the moon had seen, for in the moonlight he had been from eight o'clock till five. And thus to Betty's questions he made answer like a traveller bold. His very words I give to you. The cocks did crow to woo to woo, and the sun did shine so cold. Thus answered Johnny in all his glory, and that was all his travel story. So it's in the nature of his condition that he doesn't distinguish between the crow by day, the owl by night, the sun by day, the moon by night. And I think what Wordsworth is saying here is that this, this child in his naivety, uh, because of his mental condition, because he is the, quote marks, idiot boy, is a kind of wise savant, that he's an, the, uh, he doesn't see division. It's like the little girl in the poem I began with. She doesn't see the division between the five children above the ground, the two below, between the living and the dead. He has a unified idea in which the sound of the owl and the sound of the crow are somehow the same, the day and the night somehow the same. A unified consciousness and a unified relationship with nature in contrast to the divided consciousness and the alienation from nature that characterises education, adulthood and perhaps urbanisation. Similarly, this child, uh, at one with nature. There was a boy... Ye knew him well, ye cliffs and islands of Winanda. Winanda is the old name for Windermere. Many a time at evening, when the stars had just begun to move along the edges of the hills, rising or setting, would he stand alone beneath the trees or by the glimmering lake, and there, with fingers interwoven, both hands pressed closely palm to palm and to his mouth uplifted, he, as through an instrument, blew mimic hootings to the silent owls that they might answer him. And they would shout across the watery vale and shout again responsive to his call with quivering peals and long halloos and screams and echoed loud, redoubled and redoubled, a wild scene of mirth and jocund din. And when it chanced that pauses of deep silence mocked his skill, then sometimes in that silence, while he hung listening, a gentle shock of mild surprise has carried far into his heart the voice of mountain torrents, or the visible scene would enter unawares into his mind with all its solemn imagery, its rocks, its woods, and that uncertain heaven received into the bosom of the steady lake. Fair are the woods and beauteous is the spot, the vale where he was born, 
The churchyard hangs upon a slope above the village school, and there along that bank when I have passed at evening, I believe that near his grave, a full half hour together, I have stood mute, for he died when he was ten years old. It's a wonderful sense in that moment when the owls don't respond, the whole of the scene responds, it enters him unawares. Again, that idea of wise passiveness, of receptiveness to the forces of nature. All the scene, all the valley of Winandamir enters the child. The consciousness of the self and of nature is unified. When Wordsworth first drafted this poem, he wrote it in the first person. I. He then changed it, put it into the third person, and imagine the child dying at the age of 10. In a sense, what he's doing there is symbolically saying that unified consciousness of nature dies when childhood ends, when puberty begins. The style of that poem, a moment of boyhood in the Lake District remembered, became the, the style, the hallmark of Wordsworth's greatest poem, his long autobiographical poem, which he never gave a title to, but which was published after his death with the title The Prelude or Growth of a Poet's Mind, an autobiographical poem. Homer wrote epic stories about Troy. Virgil wrote the national poem about the foundation of Rome. Milton wrote the great epic poem Paradise Lost about the war in heaven and the salvation of man. Wordsworth became the first writer in history to write an epic autobiographical poem an epic poem, not about his society, not about gods, not about heroes, about himself. He invented the idea of poetic autobiography. Rousseau's confessions had, in some senses, invented modern autobiography in prose. Wordsworth invents it in verse. A vision of himself. And he begins it, the first two books, with his childhood. A vision that begins with the River Derwent flowing beside the garden wall of the house in Cockermouth where he was born. The river speaks and it asks the native poet, the poet of the place, to respond in flowing lines that are themselves somehow like a river. His childhood home, his birthplace in Cockermouth, that's owned by the National Trust now, is an elegant, imposing house, but for Wordsworth, the key memory of it was the memory of that river that he heard as he grew up. Indeed, he says his own earliest memory was of total immersion in the crystal waters of that river, the River Derwent. And the first self-image in the first draft of his autobiographical poem is of a naked four-year-old boy making one long bathing of a summer's day, basking in the sun, plunging into the stream. And then when the rain comes pouring down, as sooner or later, usually sooner, it always does in the Lake District, he remembers himself standing alone, as he puts it, like a naked savage framed against crag, hill, wood and distant Skiddaw's lofty height. Skiddaw, the uh, pyramid-like mountain which he could see from his home. Naked, savage, child, 
you begin to see the theme of this lecture coming together. Each of these words, and Wordsworth is writing the aftermath of the French Revolution, carries heavy political baggage. Wordsworth was born into a Britain in which bodies were always covered in public, frock coats, stiff collars, breeches and boots. People did not wear shorts to hike the hills, let alone strip off to sunbathe. In the early 1780s, when Wordsworth was entering puberty, the actress, fashion icon and former royal mistress Perdita Robinson, who would go on to become a poet and write that poem about the boy of Averroine, she imported a new style of garment from France, the figure-hugging chemise flowing with the contours of the female body. In a world of hoops and strays, that was a stays that was perceived to be revolutionary and dangerous, as was the celebration of naked youthful bodies in the art of William Blake. For Wordsworth, as for Blake, the naked child denoted a state of innocence, free from the oppression and control that came with swaddling clothes, dogmatic lessons and the disciplines of the whip. Three years before Wordsworth was born, Johann Fuseli, an artist like Blake who rebelled against the conventions of the age and relished the naked human body, published with the aid of the radical bookseller Joseph Johnson, uh, a brief treatise called Remarks on the Writings and Conduct of J.J. Rousseau. And it was probably the first work to offer a defence in English of Rousseau's writings. In Rousseau's thought experiments of imagining a society without inequality, the ideals, as we have seen, are two figures who do not have any notion of property. Rousseau believes that the origin of inequality is property. Those two figures are the savage or natural man, what has become known as the noble savage, and the young child. So when Wordsworth begins his poetic autobiography by representing himself as a naked boy and then a naked savage in the thunder shower, living in the moment at one with nature, he is identifying himself as a natural man of the kind evoked in Fuseli's account of how Rousseau, to, to, to quote Fuseli here, traced man to the nipple of nature. Brilliant use of the metaphor nipple there because of the importance for Rousseau, the idea of breastfeeding. Traced man, Rousseau traced man, Fuseli says, to the nipple of nature, found him wrapped up in instinct, taught his law by appetite and fear, harmless because content, content because void of comparative ideas, solitary because without wants, snatching the moment on the wing from the past and future ones. In this wilderness of nature, behold him free, improvable, compassionate. I mean, almost every term there that Fuseli applies to Rousseau could be applied to Wordsworth. The nipple of nature, instinct, fear, so many of the great moments of Wordsworth's childhood in the prelude are those where there is a moment of fear or awe. He's climbing to steal eggs from a bird's nest or famous account when he steals a boat, rows out onto the lake and suddenly sees a cliff rearing up in front of him. That idea of the sublime is associated with awe, with fear. And then the idea of solitariness and of being in the moment. Lovely phrase, snatching the moment on the wind in the wilderness of nature, free, improvable, compassionate, that idea of sympathy again. Early in the prelude, Wordsworth offers another early childhood memory of how his eye would be drawn to a road that led over the hill above the town in which he was born and on into an unknown distance. Few sights, he claimed, 
pleased him more than a public road. I haven't put a public road in the other slide, but I put, I put a public bridge with a, an impoverished figure on it, and behind it a waterfall, another uh, form of, of, of motion that Wordsworth adored. And then Wordsworth writes this about the sights he sees on a public road, a sight that had wrought on my imagination since the morn of childhood, when a disappearing line, one daily present to my eyes, that crossed the naked summit of a far-off hill beyond the limits that my feet had trod, was like an invitation into space boundless. One of Wordsworth's most fantastic poetic techniques is running his sentences across the line ending. We saw that with the, um, uh, the, the pause uh, in the what There Was a Boy poem, where he hung listening. You hang as you read it for a moment at the line ending. And he does it there, this idea of looking up to this road leading to the distance like an invitation into space boundless. We are actually invited into the space, the white space at the end of the line of verse before it runs on. Boundless, boundless, without bound, associated with freedom. He's imagining himself being called from his home to a wandering life. And the on-the-road conversation with a vagrant, a discharged soldier, a dispossessed woman, an impoverished leech-gatherer, a shepherd, this would become the hallmark of his poetry. But childhood was not all ideal. Wordsworth was educated by hard experience into strong feeling. Nearly all his greatest poetry is pervaded by a feeling of loss, the loss of childhood, of freedom, the loss of that unmediated relationship with nature that began when the four-year-old child plunged naked into the River Derwent. And for a psychological explanation of this, we need look no further than a day one month before his eighth birthday. His mother returned from a visit to friends in London. She'd been accommodated in the so-called best bedroom, and that's to say a guest room reserved for special occasions and therefore not regularly aired. The bed was damp. She caught a cold, which turned to a decline, probably pneumonia. Soon after her return, she died. The seven-year-old William's last impression of his mother was a glimpse of her on passing the door of her bedroom during her last illness while she was reclining in her easy chair. Not yet eight years old. He readily admitted that he remembered very little of his mother, yet he firmly believed that it was from her that he learned his love of nature. Blessed the infant babe, he wrote, as he embarked on his project to use his best conjectures to trace the progress of our being, this great autobiographical poem, The Prelude. The baby, nursed in its mother's arms or sleeping on its mother's breast, presumably having fed at that breast, is blessed because it is learning the experience of sympathy, the force of love. It is, Wordsworth says, through the bond with our mothers in our infancy that we first claim manifest kindred with a soul other than our own. As the baby at, his breath, at the breast gazes into the mother's eyes, it has its first experience of strong feeling, of what we might call love. The reciprocal exchange of passion, Wordsworth says, is like an awakening breeze that in time will extend its force and bind us to our natural surroundings, irradiating and exalting all objects through all intercourse of sense. Along his infant veins, he writes in the prelude, are interfused the gravitation and the filial bond of nature that connect him with the world. 
The baby feels safe when by intercourse of touch it holds mute dialogues with the mother's heart. And there's an analogy there with that mute dialogue with nature in the owl passage. That is the sensation needed to make the self secure in the world. And Wordsworth says this infant sensibility is the great birthright of our being. But what happens if the mother is lost, the young self left alone, seeking this visible world, not knowing why, the props of the affections removed? Wordsworth writes of the baby in his mother's arms, no outcast he, bewildered and depressed. He's reaching back there in the prelude to that unconscious early memory, or perhaps he's clutching at the beautiful belief of belonging because his mother's death occurred when he was at such a sensitive age. It made him an outcast, bewildered and depressed. How would he eventually recover his sense of self, his faith in the world? First, as we saw last time, through the hope brought by the revolution that he witnessed in France, but then, when the revolution turned to violence and political disillusionment followed, through a return to the place of his birth and his childhood, to Mother Nature, to the Lake District, which he did more than anyone else to immortalise and so to preserve. And it is that story of the Lake District, from Wordsworth to Canon Rawnsley to Beatrix Potter, that will be my theme next month. Thank you.